Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Any regular Louisiana Eats listener already knows that my very favorite holiday is Halloween. The costumes, the candy, the scary, scary ghosts who walk the earth on that magical night. For this year's edition, we have some very special treats and no tricks, I promise. We begin with our friend Sally Asher, who on Halloween's past has taken us on a special tour of St. Louis Cemetery number three. This year, we're touring two different New Orleans cemeteries in search of our dearly departed restaurateurs and other food luminaries. Wait till you hear who Sally <clears throat> dug up for us. Then we'll take you to Courtyard Brewery, which is operating out of an old New Orleans funeral home. Courtyard's owner, Scott Wood, and manager, Rebecca Cianci, have some terrifying tales to share. Before we sit down with our resident medium, Debbie Duval, who recently put me in touch with Tujac's famous cross-dressing ghost, Julian L. Tinge. Start carving the pumpkins and prepare for a scare on this week's Louisiana Eats. Holding row after row of the city's famous above-ground tombs, New Orleans cemeteries are veritable cities of the dead. Here lie the remains of denizens, both famous and infamous, as well as everyday people who have played a role in our city's history. Author and historian Sally Asher has long been an authority on New Orleans cemeteries where the tombs are as distinctive as the lives of those interred within them. We met one overcast October morning at Greenwood Cemetery, located at City Park Avenue and Canal Boulevard. Sally, how long have you been fascinated by New Orleans cemeteries and researching these stories? I would say about 10 years. My book on St. Louis cemeteries, St. Louis 1, 2, and 3, came out, I believe, in 2015. And what happened, it's a typical New Orleans story. I was a guest lecturer on the Royal Caribbean Cruise Line. They contacted me and they, and they asked me to come in and lecture and do three lectures on New Orleans, and I would get a free cruise to Mexico, which I took. And that was my first time lecturing to people who were not from New Orleans. So when you say, you know, neutral ground or, you, you know, you drop the usual phrases, second line, that you're used to people knowing, hands were shooting up in the middle of a lecture. <laughs> so what I found was 
that people were very curious about the cemeteries. I got a lot of questions about cemeteries, which was not my topic at the time. So when I came back, I started researching the cemeteries and realized there was a lot of books out there about the architecture and a lot of books with beautiful photos of the tombs, but there wasn't a lot of information on the people actually buried in them. And that's what interested me, was who is here, what was their footprint like, you know, what did they do? Often there are these very kind of small hidden tombs that nobody pays attention to that has a wonderful story attached to it. And so I thought, what a shame it was that you can stand in front of some of these masterpieces or, or art. I consider New Orleans cemeteries to basically be an, an outside art museum that's ever-changing with the, with the elements. But I wanted to tell the stories of to people to know and appreciate who was here, what their story was, what they did. Right now I'm currently working on a book for the symbolism of New Orleans cemeteries. And it's been amazing to look at it with a different eye, with a different viewpoint. So where do we begin? So right now, we are in front of the tomb of Jeannie Tong. I don't think I've ever seen a Buddha in a cemetery. Amongst all the angels, this Buddha tomb uh, that we're standing in front of, Jeannie Tong, lives up to the tomb. The story matches the tomb. Tong was born in China, but his father was born in America, so he came to the States in 1914, and he eventually learned to fly at an academy here. And then he returned to China, and he flew for the China Air Corps for four years before returning to the U.S. So in 1942, he comes to New Orleans after a chance encounter in Houston where he met his future wife, the burlesque dancer Adra Cooper. Now, she was from St. Louis, and she danced with the famed Minskys, which was known as the top burlesque performers. Now, Cooper was very famous in her own right for doing a snake act dance with her seven bow constrictors. They fell in love, this, uh, this chef from China and this white Caucasian burlesque dancer from St. Louis, and they moved to New Orleans, which they said was their absolute favorite city. So they opened up the Chinatown Cafe on Bourbon Street, and this featured American and Chinese food. Now his wife would be there and she would waitress and she would help out, but she would continue to dance. And then in 1969, he wrote a cookbook that was published by Pelican Press called Chopsticks Unlimited. And Mayor Victor Skiro wrote the introduction for the book. Tong was actually the first Chinese man to be admitted to the Grand Lodge of Masons in Louisiana. So when he died in 1973, um, he had Masonic services. So his wife, who used to like to wear turbans and smoke small cigars, uh, she continued to run the restaurant in the French Quarter until she died in 1980. So that's how we have this Buddha tomb in the middle of Greenwood Cemetery. So this is, I would think, for most visitors, a fairly obscure tomb. Not for locals who have lived here for a while, but we are standing in front of Ruthie Mulan's tomb, also known as Ruthie the Duck Girl. Oh, Ruthie the Duck Girl. What a character she was. I even have uh, pictures of her on magnets on my refrigerator. I loved Ruthie. I have a frame poster of Ruthie in my house. So she was born in the French Quarter in 1932 
And her mom decided that she wanted to do her hair like Shirley Temple and have her raise ducks. So she raised ducks and these ducks would follow her around the French Quarter. When she got older, she took to wearing a wedding dress because she had been engaged and allegedly jilted. Now, whether she did the jilting or the gentleman did the jilting, it's not known. And she would roller skate around the French Quarter in a wedding dress, often a fur coat, which you know has got to be difficult in, in New Orleans in this weather, with ducks following behind her. She basically spent her entire life uh, bumming cigarettes and beer. She would say, uh, can you buy a Budweiser for my duck? And a cigarette, cool cigarettes were her favorites for later. I'm How not... does a beggar end up right here? Well, she kind of lived her life as Blanche Dubois. I rely on the kindness of strangers. Uh, Ruthie had many unusual fans, those who took care of her, who took her to doctor's appointments, which she did not want to go to, to make sure that she was fed and, and her lights were on. So chances are that her friends, the ones who took care of her, put her in here to give her a proper burial. God bless Ruthie. Next, we jumped in the car and crossed over I-10 to meet Sally at Metairie Cemetery, located within the New Orleans city limits on Metairie Road. Well, here we are at perhaps one of today's most famous tombs, the fried chicken king, Al Copeland himself. Or infamous, however you want to say that. So. Al Copeland, and I'm sure this was on purpose, when you drive into Metairie Cemetery, this is the first tomb that you will see. The nice big tomb on the left, which is also unofficially known as Millionaire's Row. So Al Copeland was born in New Orleans in 1944. He was the youngest of three sons. His family was very poor. In fact, he spent some time in the St. Thomas Public Housing Project. He never graduated from high school. He left at age 16 and he worked at Schwegman's Grocery. But at 18, he sold his car to buy his first tasty donut, which was a local donut franchise at the time. In 1972, he founded Popeye's Chicken in Araby, calling it Popeye's Mighty Good Chicken. No apostrophe in the Popeye's. He later joked that he was too poor to afford an apostrophe. So, Three weeks into it, which is very rare and almost unheard of, the restaurant started turning a profit. And by 1989, he owned the third largest chicken chain in the country. I love that Chris Rose called him our own Elvis, New Orleans' own Elvis. So Copeland was known for his over-the-top lifestyle. Obviously, nobody told him that you can't take it with you. Anybody who lived in New Orleans at the time of Al Copeland's funeral We'll remember seeing the Lamborghinis, the cigarette boats, all with a somber black ribbon decorating them, but grouped all around his tomb. They had his motorcycles, his boats, his cars packed. His three ex-wives, three out of his four, because one had died, were all here. The funeral director, Jerry Shane, said they were all crying and hugging. Uh, they released 11 doves into the air. 11 was Al Copeland's lucky number and 111 balloons. And it was quite a spectacle for all to see. So right now we are standing in front of Ruth Fertel's tomb. She was born in 1927. She graduated from high school at 15, and at the age of 19, she earned her degree in chemistry and physics. 
So she taught briefly at a junior college, and then she found herself working as a lab technician in 1965, divorced with two sons. So looking for a way to fund her son's college education, by chance she was going through the want ads and saw a restaurant for sale, Chris's Steakhouse. So she mortgaged her home, she got the money, and she bought Chris's Steakhouse on Broad Street. She had no restaurant experience, and at the time, she did everything. She took reservations, she sat customers, she filled in for the dishwasher. Now in 1975, after a fire, she moved the restaurant a few blocks down. But the owner said that he only gave her the rights to the name if it stayed in its original location. So what did she do? She just threw her first name in front of the restaurant, which is Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. So it became this mecca for local politicians. She started her first franchise in 1977, and today there are over 150. So in 1999, her and her friend Lana Duke built this beautiful mausoleum in Metairie Cemetery, which has these double bronze doors, and inside there's a stained glass window of an angel with what was said was Ruth's favorite quote, which is, what a wonderful world. And of course, what did she do? She had an unveiling party for her new tomb, and this is in 1999. The pictures in the newspaper were simply unbelievable. There was a priest out here to bless the tomb. There was a band, and Ruth and Lana danced. Lots of dancing. Unfortunately, she died three years later at the age of 75 in 2002. But there was a 50th anniversary party for her restaurant in 2015. Food, brass band, music, tasting, dancing, again in front of her mausoleum. Oh, Sally, thank you for showing me this tomb. The tomb of Louis Prima. Louis Prima was a local New Orleans musician and trumpeteer, band leader, singer, just all around amazing. He's also known for Yes We Have No Bananas, Angelia, and I love his version of Somewhere Over the Rainbow as well. Here he is, good Italian boy, right here with his mother and father, and how incredible it turns out the house I live in now on Canal Boulevard, Louis built for his mother, Angelina. So I'm so happy to know where her tomb is and get to come and visit her here. On his tomb, which I like to say combines his love of women and jazz, at the top he has Gabriel the angel, the blowingest angel in the group blowing a trumpet. And then on the front of his tomb, he has some of the lyrics from his song, Just a Gigolo. So when the end comes, I know they'll say just a gigolo and life goes on without me. Well, Sally, I can't say how much I thank you for ending this incredible tour with my new friends, Angelina Prima and her husband. I can't wait to have a word with her when I go home. I think I might go home and eat a banana in his honor. <laughs> <laughs> We have no bananas, we have no bananas today, we got string beans and onions and big juicy lemons. That was Sally Asher 
author, historian, and now owner and operator of Red Sash Tours in New Orleans. As you just learned, no one does a cemetery tour quite like Sally. To learn more about her tours, visit redsashtours.com or check her out on Instagram at redsashtours. Coming up next, we grab a beer and chase some spirits at Courtyard Brewery, a neighborhood haunt that's also patronized by poltergeists. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. When he got them in the store, there was fun, you bet. Someone asked for bananas and then the whole quartet. Oh, yes, we have no bananas. We have no bananas today. I'm Poppy Tooker. And you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways, Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. My name is Scott Wood. I'm the owner and head brewer of the Courtyard Brewery in New Orleans, Louisiana. I'm Rebecca Cianci, and I'm the operations manager at Courtyard. Courtyard Brewery originally opened their doors in 2014 on Arado Street in New Orleans' Lower Garden District. But the popular brewery quickly outgrew that space, and Courtyard's owner and head brewer, Scott Wood, discovered a perfect new spot just around the corner at 1160 Camp Street. Our friend who lives in the neighborhood had a line on a building and wondered if we would consider moving over and being an anchor tenant. We came and looked at the space, and then we spoke with the family that built the place. They're actually home brewers, too, which I thought was really cool. Originally built in 1928 as the Breedy family's funeral home, the two-story building was constructed utilizing 18-inch thick walls with four huge columns towering over the entrance. Many years later, the building became home to Bridge House, an addiction treatment facility. The floor was good and the bones were good and it had air conditioning, which we were ecstatic about after five years in a brewery with no AC. (laughs) But before the brewery could move in, lots of work needed to be done, with Scott Wood and his operations manager, Rebecca Cianci, doing much of it themselves. The two welcomed us to the brewery, ready to fill us in on all the haunting details. So the building that we're standing in was originally a garage, and it housed old... They weren't hearses, they were, I think they were Packards back then, 
but they were funeral cars. And the main building, um, the Breedy Building, as it's known, was finished in 1928 as a mortuary. So there's an advertisement that we got a picture of, and they call it the most modern funeral home of the South. And I thought that was just the coolest thing when we saw it. I've heard stories from people who had stayed here before when it was Bridge House. And then we spoke with the original owners, and they had kind of given us a history of its use as a mortuary. There was an embalming room. There was a, a weird elevator that we found that we didn't know existed. There's been a bunch of really weird things that we've found in the ceilings and in the walls uh, when we were rebuilding the bathrooms and renovating and taking things apart. Pretty much every single thing we did had like just a spooky result. Like you'd be like, oh, I'm just gonna work on this part of the wall today. I've found a mattress. It's been sealed into the wall for who knows how long. It's child size. <laughs> it was incredibly creepy, kind of every step of the way throughout the whole thing. Yeah, the children's beds really creeped us out really? because nobody had ever heard of children ever staying here. And I mean, these are like really small beds with like just metal bed frames with like desiccated wrappings and stuff. Kind of every time we have to do a little bit of roof work or something, it there's a new thing to discover. Yeah. And I think that from what I've been told, you know, when you start to rehabilitate a building or you start to move walls around or take stuff down, you know, the spirits come out. <laughs> from the brewery space overlooking the namesake courtyard, we made our way into the former funeral home's formal area coming upon a grand staircase leading to the second floor. The upstairs was comprised of many small empty rooms where most recently the Bridge House residents had resided. I asked Scott about the paranormal activity they've been experiencing in the building. I'm a skeptic, but I like, but I like the idea, <laughs> you know? Um, so, I'm like, this couldn't be haunted, right? But then you hear, when we were in the, in the middle of construction, Rebecca and I were here one evening, and we hear this thump, 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 pound, pound, pound upstairs, like somebody stomping around up here and know that the building was empty and come up and investigate it and be like, who's here? Hello? You know, is anybody here? Who's here? And we never found it, of course. And we go downstairs and you hear the thump, thump, thump again, and it's not an air conditioning unit because there was no power at that point. It wasn't like a roofer stomping around, and we knew that the landlord wasn't here because he... Honestly, we'd called him a lot of times. We're like, are you here? Please <laughs> let this be a person. Yeah, it was really freaky. We were here late a lot, and you could always feel kind of whether or not it was going to be a spooky night because it was like... Everything in this building is so quiet. We're really close to the interstate. You can't hear it. Mm. Like, you can't hear anything at all in this building. You feel like you're totally isolated. And then suddenly you'd hear a noise. I think the voices in the kitchen were, like, one of the spookiest things because the kitchen was kind of boarded up at the time. 
and we couldn't There's figure no there was no way to get in we couldn't figure out like the window the service window is boarded up like it was just an empty space everything would be silent and then we would just hear Whispers, yeah. two people having a conversation two distinct voices mm -hmm. and we would be like okay like that has to be a person Neither of us would go check it ourselves. I know he seems very brave, but <laughs> we would both be like, okay, we're going to walk carefully together, talking loudly <laughs> to make sure. I mean, we would hear it kind of all the way as we walked up to the door. And then we would stand out there and listen. And sometimes he'd be like, okay, so it's a person. So I'm going to like go in front. I'm going to have to talk to these people. They can't be in here. And then we would open the door, totally empty. Nobody in there, and it would be silent. We have this other issue with one of the doors upstairs that I get really frustrated with our staff because I'm like, did you guys check to make sure that that door is locked because it's open again? And this door would be locked and flung open every day. I can show you the door. I mean, it's just the yeah. door out to the the roof. And when it's locked, I'll show you. You can't push it open. After Scott demonstrated to us how the door in question couldn't possibly open by itself, he took us into the former embalming room. With only a bit of daylight coming in through the window, the room was pretty dark and gloomy. Suddenly, there was an inexplicable flash of light. I saw Reggie Morris, my sound engineer, exchange a glance with Rebecca and asked if they'd seen it too. That was a very strange little flash of, what was that flash? Spooky flash of light. I mean, really, oh, I there, just saw was there that. A flash of light? Yes. Yes. I saw it on my. Yeah, we made eye contact about it. We were like, okay. Yeah. I just, and there's uh, there's no lights on. That was very weird. It is one of the spookiest places I've ever have been you, in. Have you had that experience before, where you just have this little flash? Yeah. I mean, I, it happens honestly so often that I'm just not even sure if it's real sometimes. <laughs> That's why, I get, like I said, I'm a skeptic, and it's, I just kind of have accepted that there's stuff I can't explain. So this is, like, the front door. And to be honest, it's, like, one of the f doors that sometimes people forget to lock. So I ended up coming here a lot by myself to check it. So it's usually late at night, and it's... When I first started doing it, I would like have to call him and be on the phone with him. I was like, I'm going to go check it. It's going to be fine um, because it was really spooky. And it was spooky because you can just see somebody looking out from this window sometimes. Late at night. Only late at night. It's a lady who she has really well done kind of updo hair. And she just stands in the window with like... I, don't, I never see her feet, but like the top of a pretty looking shirt or dress. My goodness. But, but she's friendly. She never said anything about the door. You know, she never, I never encountered her <laughs> or anything. It was always just as I walked up and I would, you know, see her and then like see the curtain fall back into place. This one day, a woman came in for, to pick up a couple crawlers, a couple beers. 
And she said, I'm so glad the brewery's in here. You know, I used to work here when it was Bridge House. And I was like, oh, that's that's really interesting. You know, like, did you have any uh, experiences or any weirdness or anything? And she, she, the face, the look on her face was, was very telling. And she said, um, uh, yeah, there's a woman who haunts the upstairs back corridor where we are. And when it was bridge house that she was known to go and sit on the edge of beds, she was a, a nice, like a nice ghost, nice presence, uh-huh. um, nothing malicious. And I think that that's one of the things that we've really liked about the place is like, all these things have been funny and not really like there's nothing malevolent happening not that i can tell <laughs> no i mean i think that it was always kind of weird like with the kitchen people like you would kind of get the impression that they were like people who were also working i don't know yeah. like if that's a good way to explain it but like we would be working and then you just like start to hear the voices of other people who just sounded like they were working in the kitchen they weren't talking to us. They weren't trying to scare us. They were just busy in there. After our tour was complete, Scott led us outside to view the building's facade as he shared with us his thoughts on the haunting of the brewery. I guess it it gives hope to me because I would love for nothing more than to haunt a brewery someday myself <laughs> that's and your aspiration that, huh? yeah i mean like if, if i go i don't want to i'll just stay here you know like <laughs> I, I believe that <laughs> well thank you so much for sharing your <clears throat> brewery with us <laughs> this was just thrilling i've been waiting a long time for the tale And I'm so happy to be able to share it with our Louisiana Eats listeners. Thank you, Scott and Rebecca. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much. It's good to see you. That was Scott Wood and Rebecca Cianci of Courtyard Brewery. Where does the tradition of Halloween begin? And how did that whole carving the pumpkin thing get rolling? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. Let's all Louisiana. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, located 40 miles north of New Orleans French Quarter along the shores of Lake Pontchartrain. This fall includes many outdoor festivals, 
the weekend beats and eats, and upcoming holiday events. The delicious Tammany taste culinary scene and abundance of soft adventure attractions are among the many reasons to love the North Shore's charming communities. Find details on upcoming events, itinerary suggestions, and more at louisiananorthshore.com. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Where does the tradition of Halloween begin? And how did that whole carving the pumpkin thing get rolling? The ancient Celts had a fall festival they called Sowin. Sowin was a mystical night when they lit bonfires and donned costumes to scare off ghosts. In the 8th century, Pope Gregory III designated November 1st as All Saints Day, so the night before became known as All Hallows' Eve, better known in America as Halloween. Now what about that pumpkin? In the old country, the Irish carved turnips into menacing heads and faces that they hid in hedgerows as a prank. When the Irish immigrants of the late 19th century brought their All Hallows' Eve traditions to America, they discovered the pumpkin, which is native to this continent. The pumpkin has since made the trip back across the Atlantic Ocean, where they're carved as jack-o'-lanterns today. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. In 2020, the New Orleans dining institution, Tujac's, relocated to its new, more spacious home just blocks away from the building where it was housed for over a century. During the move, owner Mark Ladder made sure to bring as much of the restaurant's past as possible. Light fixtures, mirrors, and pictures that long hung on the walls all made their way upriver. Left behind was Tujac's signature stand-up bar, deemed too fragile to make the journey, along with its iconic neon sign. Now that it's Halloween season, I find myself thinking about other things left behind. What of the spirits that haunted the old Tujac's building? You can't pack them up, can you? When I first started working on the Tujac's Restaurant Cookbook back in 2013, I quickly became aware of the heavy paranormal activity going on in the restaurant's former home. Although I never actually saw a ghost, my most consistently haunting experience was the uncanny parking spot on Madison Street that was always waiting for me when I visited there. 
And then there's the supernatural help I received while researching the book. Unable to track down images of the former owners, I went up to the attic six weeks before the manuscript was due, only to find everything I'd been searching for mysteriously waiting there for me. I'd searched that attic multiple times for images and artifacts, but that last trip revealed new things I'd swear had not been there before. I honestly felt as though the Tujak spirits wanted me to get their stories straight and make sure everyone's pictures made it into the book. Of course, there's one spirit at Tujak's old home with whom I share the deepest of bonds. Many of you may be familiar with the restaurant's cross-dressing ghost, the RuPaul of the early 20th century, Julian L. Tinge. Back in 2013, when Tujak's owner Mark Ladder painted the dining rooms, he removed an autographed photo of Julian that had hung there since 1917. Not long after, a young couple from West Virginia were dining in the same room and snapped a selfie. When they got home and reviewed the photo, there was Julian, eerily suspended over a table of unsuspecting diners, right in the corner where his portrait formerly hung. When Mark shared the snapshot with me, I took one look and recognized Julian from his portrait. We put his picture back up on the wall, and Julian stopped playing photobombing Phantom. With Julian's picture back where it belonged, I thought maybe that would be the last we'd hear from him. But in June 2020, Julian actually spoke to me. While waiting for my drag queen friends to show up for a New Orleans magazine photo shoot, I was standing in the doorway of the same dining room where Julian had appeared. The space was bustling with the photographer and his assistant setting up the shoot, while outside, the bar was crowded and the restaurant was hopping. Suddenly, over my left shoulder, I heard a high-pitched voice call out, Yoo-hoo! My friend Jake heard it, too. He turned to me and announced, Drag queen in the house, expecting it to be Star Alexander or Laveau Contraire. But when we turned to look at the front door to see who was arriving, there was no one there. We asked the photographer and his crew and everyone else with impossible earshot if they'd heard what we heard. We were met with blank stares and a negative shake of the head. No one heard a thing. This only confirmed to me what I honestly believed to be true, that the voice was the ghost of Julian L. Tinge. Between his cookbook help and catcalls, had Julian and I forged some sort of otherworldly connection? Was his ghost happily haunting New Orleans' second oldest restaurant? Or was I just going out of my mind? There was only one way to get answers to these questions. 
and that was to ask Julian himself. And since he's been dead since 1941, I needed someone who possessed the special skills necessary to mediate between this world and the next. That's right. I called a medium. A mutual friend introduced me to Debbie Duval. Debbie has been a psychic her entire life and explained to me that her mother and grandmother had the gift as well. She told me that when she interacts with spirits, she comes from a place of empathy, quite a different path than some of the ghost hunters you might catch on TV. You'll see other shows, they may spend hours or two nights and they may get something, uh, yeah, I'm here, that's it. And when they do, they don't ask them, well, do you need prayers? Are you happy? Is there something we can do? It's all about them capturing it. Not all of them are on the tape. A lot of times they don't want to have cameras in their faces all the time. If you could just treat them all with respect. Debbie recommends approaching spirits with the same courtesy you would offer a living, breathing person. A little humility can go a long way, after all. The spirits are, are still, they allow me, as well as I, I know other people, to know what they were like when they were in the human body. And that, just because they're not in that human body, they're still very much alive. I invited Debbie to join me and my daughter, Maddie Mulladew, for a very private dinner on Tujac's second floor. I was first to arrive, followed by Debbie and Maddie, who greeted each other at the front door. In the short time it took them to reach the stairs, Debbie's sixth sense was already on alert. When we first walked in, right at the bottom of the stairwell, I was like that cold draft, and I knew the presence, I knew the presence was there. Debbie had only made her way up the first couple of stairs before she came to a full stop. Maddie observed Debbie's demeanor change as her face grew flush and her breathing became increasingly labored. I couldn't catch my breath. And I was like, this is really different. This is serious. Feeling immense pressure on her waist and diaphragm, Debbie described the sensation of being squeezed on all sides. Frightened and gasping for air, she looked to Maddie for help finding a restroom. I actually daughter, and she said, it's right there, it's right there. And I found myself in there, and it was like, get on the floor. And I'm like, oh, I'm not in a fire, but I'm on the floor. <laughs> I'm like, I'm in this really well-kept area, but I'm on the floor, and I'm not breathing, and nobody knows. I wear a back brace, well, I never take, I ripped that off. It would literally rip the back brace off. I never done that before. Upon removing her back brace, Debbie was able to regain control of her breathing and reflect. When Debbie and I spoke on the phone initially to set the dinner up, she said someone wanted to contact me, whose name began with a J. It was clear from the start that my friend Julian was trying to come through, and as she came up the stairs that night, she said she felt as though he were trying to jump into her body. It was happening. It was real. But then as the night went, 
with y'all's company and he didn't get to know, there was a lot of significance to me taking his brace up. Discussing her physical experience over dinner, I was able to link her sensation with information I'd recently learned about Julian's final days. Maintaining an hourglass figure was an essential part of his act, so Julian spent his life packing his body into tight corsets, which he affectionately referred to as old iron sides. As he got older, Julian increasingly suffered from back and kidney problems, plus other ailments aggravated by wearing the constrictive garment. This corseting illness was actually common amongst 19th century women. Was this Julian's ghost showing Debbie what it was like in his body before he shuffled off this mortal coil? Debbie thinks so. Like with his previous hauntings, she believes this was Julian's way of being remembered. A lot of times some really good or talented people with a good heart are overlooked or never spoken about, maybe due to the lifestyle. But this particular person, he is just, she is, is so enamored with you. She, you don't realize how happy. It's like a little kid having a whole day at a fair or something. 80 years in the echoing vaults of eternity, and Julian's bubblier than a glass of champagne. This certainly confirmed my suspicions. But I was fascinated to learn some new information that Debbie said Julian's ghost revealed to her. On the other side, Debbie explained to me, Julian doesn't go by he. She goes by she. Sometimes with this particular spirit, and, and she says she's an angel, and I truly believe that, she was only 13 when she began this, her career. The sacrifices she went through at such a young age, if she wants to be called a she, how hard is that? Because that's how she's supposed to be in this lifetime. I was so touched to learn that Julian wants to be known as a she, something she certainly deserves in the 21st century. Feeling the ebullience of Julian's spirit, Debbie didn't hold a grudge about that scare from earlier. And during her visit, it wasn't just Julian's jubilation that she came to appreciate. As it turns out, almost all the specters haunting Tujaks are a kind and grateful bunch. I enjoyed it because I hope, you know, they were happy and they liked certain people around and they like you. And I think it's always a plus when you have good spirits and they like you. Yeah. But I don't think you're giving yourself the credit for what you've done. You've opened up, you know, expression, they open up a can of worms. This isn't a can of worms. They are really nice spirits. This was like a box of chocolates. Yeah, that's a good that's a good correlation. I never thought of that. That was Debbie Duval, psychic medium based out of New Orleans, talking about Julian L. Tinge and the spirits of Tujacs in 2019. Now I have to wonder. What did Julian and the rest of those happy spirits think about the restaurant changing locations? What about Julian's portrait once again being moved? And are there any specters haunting the Tujac's new home at 429 Decatur? Those are questions for Debbie, I think. 
but at least I can answer that last one with some confidence. As long as there's a Tujax, there will be ghosts. After all, there's a reason they call New Orleans the most haunted city in America. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. If you like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta. Handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods in wooden cellars, D'Agostino Pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlo and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner and producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris. And to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.